This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Joining us right now to talk about the new conservative leader at the federal level and how all of this came about is Jason Leader, president of Enterprise Canada. Jason, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, sorry sorry about the phone issues earlier, but I'm happy to, happy to be here now. It's amazing that we got to talk to you, so we totally appreciate you taking the time and hanging around a little longer. I was talking a little bit about the fact that it concerns me, and I know this happens in politics probably more often than I would want it to, but that Aaron O'Toole ran as a moderate, didn't work, now said, I'm more right than Peter McKay, and it did work, and it leaves me thinking, okay, who is this person? Is that something I shouldn't be concerned about as a Canadian, or, or should I be? Well, sometimes it's sometimes when people run as phonies, when people run as sort of, you know, with the BS meter is just going off, it is something you should be concerned about. In this particular case, I got to tell you, what you see is what you get. I've known Aaron O'Toole for a long time since he ran in a by-election, you know, back when I was when I was working in uh, Stephen Harper's office. He got to Ottawa, and I got to tell you, the one thing that struck me immediately was he was a grown-up. He actually knew who he was, right? He'd he'd been a lawyer. He'd worked in corporate corporate Canada. He'd been a he'd been a you know, a pilot of helicopters in the military. He actually knew who he was. He, you know, family man, really good guy, really principled. So I don't think this is something we have to worry about with Mr. O'Toole. What I will say about the strategy, and, and to get back to your question is, his strategy was, was, was perfect and brilliant, and it worked absolutely, you know, sort of really well, because what he did was he, he everybody who was going to vote for Peter McKay, which it turned out was about 33% of the party, voted for Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole sort of opened himself up to everybody else and said, You're, you've got a place in my party. And a lot of people responded to that and said, okay, well, maybe maybe we'll give this guy a chance. So he really ran a, a, a good campaign. Mr. O, Mr. McKay should have won this thing. He got caught flat-footed. He, you know, he had every advantage in terms of name recognition and fundraising and profile. He should have won this thing, uh, and he didn't. And you know, good on Mr. Mr. O'Toole for, for pulling it out. So help us to understand then, Jason, because you know Aaron O'Toole so well, who is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada right now? Yeah, I think I think from my side, when I think of Aaron, what I think about is is two main sort of areas. Number one, like this is a guy who, you know, you know, he looks like I'm sure most Canadians when they saw him essentially for the first time or last little bit look and say, like, that looks like a guy from across the street or, you know, maybe that's a guy I borrowed a set of wrenches from my neighbor, you know, a couple. So, like, he really is he really does is an every man. He looks like a regular guy, you know, suburban, suburban wife and kids, you know, sort of typical stuff. So really, he is that guy. And and he's not just playing one on TV. I've, I've known him long enough to know that, that that actually is the case. Number two. Um, I found him to be sort of uh, focused on certainly economic and family issues for the most part, since, uh, you know, sort of like family budgeting kind of stuff is the kind of thing that I've found him to be focused on over, over, over the years. It's really something that I feel like um, is his main area of, of focus. And then sort of third, I think that military history really does, um, you know, there's a discipline to him that is, uh, I think interesting, you know, he really ran essentially a gaff free uh, race, which is difficult when you're, he's not new to politics, but he's new to sort of like national leadership. And so he's really disciplined. 
And I think that military background sort of brings it like uh, what I've seen about him is he, you know, he'll figure out the three or four things he cares about and actually, actually do them. He really quieted down. He, when he got put into cabinet, he took over the veterans affairs portfolio and he really quieted down and did a, a, a very good job and was, I think, well supported by veterans there. So I'm looking forward to his leadership and like Mr. Trudeau is all sizzle, not much steak, right? That's my, my own view of Mr. Trudeau. And I think it matches what a lot of Canadians think. Um, Mr. 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 O'Toole is not a lot of sizzle, but plenty of steak, you know, and hopefully that's what Canadians are looking for. Well, we'll see how it all plays out. We really appreciate it, Jason, that you've given us that picture of who Aaron O'Toole is. I love it. He looks like a guy who you borrowed a set of wrenches from once, but it sounds like there's a lot more complexity there, and it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see how it plays out. Yeah, thanks, thanks for so having much me, Mikey, and uh, appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Keep thanks. safe. That's Jason Lehner, president of Enterprise Canada. Alternatives. We always need them in life. You need an alternative to something if you get tired of something else. You need an alternative to peanut butter and jam. If you ate that every single day, eventually you'd go, I can't do it. It doesn't matter what it is. You do it over and over and over again, and it's nice to get a break. Do it a different way. Eat a different thing. And this year, alternatives have popped up in a number of different ways. There are some that we can't really turn to. I want to go back to the way it was. Yeah, well, we can't do that right now. But if you're looking at alternatives to education, as many people are, there are things that are popping up. But it's kind of difficult to make some of them work unless you're in a certain particular spot. And in other cases, you know, there just isn't a a perfect response. We've heard of pods parents are looking to put together pods if they are uncomfortable sending their kids back to school and we do know from the thames valley district school board that there are over ten thousand kids who will not be headed back to school and that we may have an online learning school complete with principal or or several of these It, it seems like that should have been figured out by now but it hasn't and so they're still working on that but there is a complete alternative to going to school in either the public system or the private system, and it's been operating for a long time. And it takes many of the elements that the pods will have to or that some parents will have to, and that is homeschooling. And we got talking about that very briefly last week, but we're lucky enough to be able to talk about it a little bit more today with Alejandra Klein, who is homeschooling her children, and she joins us now. Alejandra, thank you so much for taking some time out for us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Mike. How are you? I am not too bad at all. Let's talk a little bit about how things have gone. At any point, did any of your children go to a public school or a private school or separate school? Yes, they actually did. My kids were um, in a very lovely private school in London for five years. Okay, and then you made a decision. Take us through the decision to turn to homeschooling. Where did that come from? Well, I'm originally from Mexico, and when I came to Canada 16 years ago, I heard about the term homeschooling, and I really was very curious about what homeschooling was. And, you know, I always have this in my heart. I'm a woman of faith, and I, you know, something in my heart and tell me, and, you know, I think it will be a good idea for me to homeschool one day. And, unfortunately, we have some problems in our family two years ago, and we know that I feel like we need more bonding as a family. And I thought that uh, it was the best idea to homeschool my kids. So I pulled them out from school, 
and we started homeschooling. Now, you make it sound so easy. You know, you pull the kids out of school, we start homeschooling, no problem. Yeah, we, we, what, what would probably be, or what would possibly be uh, any concern about that? It, it probably isn't that easy, but how do you even take the step to say, all right, I'm going to do this, and now here's that first step to making it happen? What do you do? Well, you know what? I know it doesn't sound easy, but you know what, uh, Mike? In life, nothing is easy. You know, you are going to have challenging in school, out of school. That's life. So, you know, I just decide we're going to just uh, get a curriculum. I like a structure, and I think that's very important for families that they want to homeschool their, years, their kids this year is to have some structure. You know, we use a routine. I told my kids, you know, we have to get up. Like, we get up at the same time, but at 9 o'clock, I want to start homeschooling. It's just, just getting into a routine all the time, you know. Well, you have probably the the number one ingredient in all of this, and that's the attitude that nothing in life is easy. So uh, your kids are lucky to have that because that's true, and that's a great lesson to learn. We're talking with Alejandra Klein. We're talking about homeschooling, and we're looking at kind of the way that you move through this. So routine is key. How many children do you homeschool at the moment? I have a school in uh, Jacob and Emilio, and they're, this is going to be the, sec- the third year I'm actually doing homeschool. And you know what, Mike, if I'm s- sincere with you, I, I was thinking and in- send back Jacob to a school this year. You know, just for a change, We were, like they, my kids like homeschool. They really didn't want to go back to school. I told them we're going to homeschool one year, see how things go, and then you go back to the school. And you know what, that year finished, and they really didn't want to go to school. They realized at home they were finishing their work earlier, because it's something I do uh, believe is that the kids that they're spending seven hours at the school, they're not learning seven hours at the school. You know, so many other things that they're doing, that the amount of time that the kids are really learning, it's very small. Well, not very small, but, you know, it's no seven hours. They don't need to be at the school seven hours. Right, and so you feel that from an education standpoint, they've got access to you know a lot more defined learning. You, you have fewer distractions for sure, but that's maybe a question people might have in that the school experience, sure, it's about having math, and then it's about having English, and it's about having some other things, but it, there's also so many other parts of it, the, the socialization or things that, that just go on in school that you wouldn't necessarily be able to read recreated home, whether it's assemblies or plays or, or the band. How do you deal with kind of the extras in learning? Okay, well, I think, uh, Mike, that's one of the myths I say about homeschooling, that it's uh, like wrong, because they think that people in homeschool don't socialize. And I think that's, that's not true. That's not true because, yes, my kids, we're actually in London and many places, there are many homeschooling groups, pay-based, and not pay based and actually get together every week. Like my homeschooling group have over 140 kids every Friday. And in that homeschooling group, my kids are able to have friends and they're able to, to learn other things. So it's, you know, the socialization part, yes, it is important. And my kids get it. And actually I want to, to say my boys, uh, you know, they're very sociable and they just not socialize with kids their own age. But they have the socialization with adults, you know, and, and sometimes I find that when kids are all the time just socializing with kids, 
you get a uh, you know a, a ten years old kid, you you don't have a chance to have a, a good um, you know good conversations with them. But when you are outside of school, the kids get more you know more socialization with persons different ages. You know what? This this is and I don't think any of us had any idea that a homeschooling group would have as many as 140 kids in it. There yes. are some schools that are roughly around 140 kids. Yeah, that's right. And you know what is my homeschooling group is not the only homeschooling group in in London. I'm going to tell you, I'm share with you. I'm a Christian. Uh my kids go to a, a like our homeschooling group is a faith-based homeschooling group, but it's not the only homeschooling group in London. If you go and look in Facebook, it's many other homeschoolers groups that they're not paid based. Then they get together, they have co-ops, and they moms teach kids other things that they don't teach at um at the school. You know, like my kids were last year learning cooking and art and all other things that they really don't teach at the school. Alejandra Klein joining us as we talk about what it's like to homeschool your children. Alejandra, here's a question: You in order to make this happen, you kind of have to pause maybe some of the things that you are doing. So the work world gets paused for you. What has that been like? Yeah. Okay. Well, I I know for fact that homeschooling is for no no for it's not for everybody. You know, I know their parents and they have both to be working in order to bring an income to the family. But you know, I think that in my case, I'm very blessed to be able to stay home with the kids. And to teach them, and I'm going to say something, Mike, if you think that I'm teaching my kids all day, like, I really, my kids finish homeschooling around noon, and the work is done, because the curriculum I pick, of the many curriculums out there, is a curriculum that my kids learn at 20 minutes, um, they, they watch a video online, and it's 20 minutes video. And the video is very fun for the kids. They love it because they have puppets and the teacher is teaching all this nice stuff. And after 20 minutes, my kids do the the lesson, um, you know, in the the, um, workbooks. And really, I just have to oversee. So oversee what they're doing and they're doing things correctly. And then on top of that, I love to teach my kids geography because I love geography. And we've learned geography together. And then we have, we go to museums and we go to field trips. And you know what? One of the greatest things about homeschooling is that when we go out, it's not busy, you know? Like everyone else is at school and here we are, the homeschooler <laughs> families. And we have like the entire park for ourselves at the museum, you know? It's, I think the parents, I know it's not for everybody. I think, but we, as a parent, I think we have to remember that we are the first teachers in our kids' lives. You know, and we're going to be always teaching them. We teach them, since, you know, they, we teach them how to walk, how to say the first words, the colors, all those things. And I think nobody else will know your kid better than the parents, you know, better than yourself. You know, if your kid is struggling with learning, with um, reading, you're going to focus most on reading. Right? Something great about homeschooling is the amount of things you can learn. Like, you know, school, I mean, I'm not against school. Like I told you, my kids were at the school before. I was at the school. My husband was at school. I love the school. It's great schools out there. But I think that you have, like, way more variety of things you can do when you're homeschooling. Lots of Alejandra, stuff. it's been amazing speaking with you. Thank you for describing what homeschooling has been like. But in, in just kind of closing off... 
is is there is there a point where you say okay we'll we'll go back to school so that you end up going to work or resuming a career or anything like that well you know what i like i told you like i told i jacob we were going to put him back to school this year we were thinking you know what for a change let's put him back to school and maybe do another i saw a lot of families and do that one year home school one year um at school but you know like i mean i know you lose a lot when you're homeschooling, you know, you say like, oh, you're with the kids all the time. Yeah, but you know, I'm with my family and I'm teaching values and different things and they don't teach at the school. I really will say like, like if I can say something to the parents, it's not to be afraid to have your kid at the school. You know your kid better than anybody. And you just get into a routine. And for this year, coming year, uh, Mike, as I see things that are happening right now, I think, you know, lots of parents worry about if your kid is going to get enough in homeschooling that at school. And I really believe that this year, either way, the kids are going to be learning like where they need to be learning, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, Alejandra, congratulations on what you have been able to do for your children, and thank you so much for describing it so eloquently. We really appreciate the time. All the best, and please stay safe. Yeah, you too. Take care, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye. That is Alejandra Klein. So, you know... Alejandro describes how there are a lot of resources out there, obviously. There are a lot of groups out there. Homeschooling has been happening for a long, long time. And there are always those real benefits of you get to map out how quickly your child is learning. And then they can continue to learn. One of the biggest problems I have with the school system is you have to go to the lowest common denominator. You have to. The slowest person in the class... That's how fast we got to go. And you can divide it up into groups, but ultimately, no matter what you're doing, you're doing it at the pace of the slowest person in the class. And that's not doing anybody any favors, especially the people who want to go a lot faster. And yes, we have little splits every once in a while, but no, that's, that's kind of how you have to do it. Data. It wasn't even a word that we used in a spelling bee. But we still don't know how to pronounce it. Maybe it should have been featured in a spelling bee. Then we would know how to pronounce it. Is it data? Is it data? Uh, It's kind of both. No, but you would have to ask that. If I was at a spelling bee and somebody said, your word is, and then they said what it was, I could say, are there any other pronunciations? And they would say, yeah, but it's not good enough. It's actually this one. Data? Data? Don't know. Well, here's a man who deals an awful lot with data and deals an awful lot with how we need to be concerned about it. Things like privacy. What do we need to know about privacy? What do we need to know about where our data, data, data is being used? Please welcome to London Live, Dr. Thomas Cook, who we rely on in so many ways to help us out with things like this. Dr. Cook is a privacy, ethics, and internal threat assessment manager at the Center for Advanced Computing and a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center, both at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, thanks for being here. Hey, happy Monday. Glad to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. How do you say it? Data, data, duda, dota? Oh, I, I, I change it all the time. I'm a Star Trek fan, right? So I often say data. <laughs> but then I catch myself, you know, on shows like this saying data. So, you know, whatever. 
Okay, then then there really isn't a right or wrong answer. So okay, well someone... let me interject here. Let me interject here. There's something really interesting about this actually. So I was reading a really great book recently for the third or fourth time, and the author his name's Rob Kitchen. He makes the argument that society has been using the term data or data wrong the entire time. He says if you go back to its Latin origin, dare or datum, it, you get a different meaning. It means to give. So we don't think about data as measurements, but as like something that is given to a corporation. The tech just gives up all the time. Anyways, I just thought it'd be kind of fun to think about. That's kind of neat, though, for what we are talking about right now, because (laughs) everybody is out to protect their data, protect their data. And that means to give to a corporation, which I'm sure corporations would love to point to and say, well, see what we're doing here? That's exactly what they wanted us to be doing back in Latin times. That's that's exactly why they created the word. We want to talk about things like data resolution and what that actually means because we'll be concerned about where our information is going if we're online if we're using various apps we might not be all that concerned about it until something bad happens until your identity is stolen or whatever it happens to be but there's still that hey wait a minute what's what's going on when we hear stories like tim hortons using location data or when we hear stories of other companies selling off information like that we kind of get perturbed so maybe dr cook we need to learn about what exactly they can know about us through this yeah thanks for kicking it off in that way mike i I think thinking about data in terms of resolution is a really excellent way of trying to study how something like data exists so if we understand data to be like bits binaries or measurements that are they're tend to be digital, um, resolution helps us learn more conceptually and even analytically about data because what resolution refers to, um, so anybody that has dealt with this with their computer monitor, for example, they'll know that uh, you can increase, so depending upon the kind of technology you're using, um, how much detail you can see in a defined space. So the general understanding of data resolution is precisely that. It's how much detail can actually be measured inside of a defined area. And the reason why I think this is really helpful for thinking about data in general is because it it compels us to stop thinking about data as a catch-all. So if I give you like an Excel sheet and you look at a couple columns and you see some data entered into it, you might say to yourself, none of this is really relevant. But if we start having a conversation about resolution of that data, we might start thinking about the details behind it or the details around it. And the point is is that data is never just fixed in terms of its size. Depending upon the measuring device you're dealing with, there will always be other data layered below it that are finer in detail. And the more we think about the details, the more we realize that data actually has a heck of a lot more to say than, than what's being given to you or what's, you know, really meeting the eye, so to speak. Interesting. Okay. Now... That's maybe where some of the concern level comes up, the idea that we can have something out there that we didn't mean to have out there, that people can learn about us. So where does that fit into all of this, the concern level that we maybe have when we perceive something going wrong, but other times it's like, oh, do you want to pay with your credit card online? Yeah, no problem. I I worked last time, so I'll do it again. Yeah, no, that's the question that really matters, right? So we know about data resolution, but where's the so what about this? Let's take, for example, an obvious conceptualization of what location data might look like. Mike, if I were to ask you right now, 
if, if you could write down what you think location data is, what do you think you would write down? I would write down, this is information on where I was and what time I was there that could be tracked and recorded and used by a company that had access to whatever app I was running on my phone that had the ability to, to say where I was and when I was there. Right. And I think that's what most people would do. That's probably what I would do as well. And I think what you and I would end up like physically writing down is something like longitude and latitude. Would you agree with me on that? Yes. Yes. Like yeah. simple things. I would I would be a blip on a screen, Dr. Cook. That's me, blip. <laughs> a pin drop. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So if you drop a pin on a screen, what, what most people imagine in their mind's eye, especially in sci-fi pop culture, is longitude and latitude. That's data, right? That's, that's yes. location data. Okay, so here's where resolution gets really helpful. Longitude and latitude is very, very detailed, but we also know that it doesn't give precise location. So what a lot of people do who are in geography or people who are in big data is that they have to look for more detail. Where are you going to get it? Longitude and latitude only have a limited resolution, just like GPS satellites. When they take a picture of the planet Earth, there are governments and international coalitions that restrict satellite cameras from being able to see a certain amount of detail. And I believe in North America, it's three or six meters. Somebody will have to check that. But basically what it ends up ensuring, Mike, is that the resolution isn't high enough to see somebody's face. A GPS satellite over our continent is not allowed to make out a face. Now, is that why maybe on Google Maps, when you try and go, and hey, I've been bored on a hockey bus a lot, when you try and go to a certain country and you try and, say, zoom in, North Korea is one of those good examples, and you think, what would it be like to walk around on a street in North Korea? What would that look like? And you take the Google Maps little yellow guy and you try and plunk him down on a street. There's no street to plunk down on. You can't go there. That's, that's very true. That's definitely part of it. Um, now, this doesn't apply to the military. The military can see faces when they use satellites. <laughs> uh, we can't. The public can't. Google, you know, corporate products won't be able to have that resolution. But that resolution, the lack of resolution on a GPS uh, picture, or if it's like a measurement in longitude and latitude, that's still a problem because there seems to be missing detail. In, in 2020, in the era of big data, the age of information, Companies and corporations, entire industries obsess with small details. And if you don't have the smallest granular details available, you're missing something. There's some noise or some signal loss you need to keep looking. So where resolution becomes really helpful for us in terms of privacy on our phones is we start realizing that longitude and latitude is what we're given as consumers. When I go on my phone, the data resolution that I can access about my location precision is longitude and latitude. But for corporations, for groups like Google Analytics, for example, there's a whole different realm below that longitude and latitude, Mike. There's there's other data there that is more detailed. Uh, for example, how long a phone retains a connection to one specific satellite. We touched on this a little bit last week, if you were listening in. Um, this, this, the IDs of different constellations, so whether or not it's Chinese military or corporate, Russian military or corporate, European military or corporate, North American military or corporate. There's data in there about whether or not your screen is on or off. There is data in there about how fast your device is moving. This all is used to create 
longitude and latitude coordinate data. But my point is, is that there's finer details, other finer data below the longitude and the latitude. And we can't think about that unless we start having a public conversation about the resolution of data that makes up our privacy concerns on a daily basis. Very, very interesting. So, in other words, they're not necessarily interested in, hey, you know, what roast beef sandwich did you eat on Tuesday <laughs> at 11.30 in the morning? Maybe some place would be, but but they're learning a lot more than longitude and latitude. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the lack of conversation about resolution is one of the ways in which they get by without having that conversation, right? If If you go into Google Maps and you look at your PIN, and you go into like your location history and you see all of the lines on the map that shows that like, you know, Mike Stubbs left his house and took this street and then that street and then Richmond or I'm sorry, I don't even remember where you guys are located. I think you're downtown London. So you're probably on Richmond or something. We'll get to Wellington and King eventually. Wellington, you'll we eventually get to Wellington and King. So maybe <laughs> not on Richmond after all. But when you look at those lines and you click on them with your finger, you tap them with your finger. If you look at, um, you know, some of the the notifications and the notes below that, you're going to see different data that relates to those lines. But that's not everything. That's the tip of the iceberg. The stuff that's below that, the stuff that Google uses, the data that it uses to make those lines and that drawing process possible is stuff that you can't see on your own. It's really, really hard to get to. And when you actually get to it, we realize that Longitude and latitude is, is like a container. And inside of that container at the very bottom is all this other data. And it's, it's very, very weird in terms of why we as a society would ever come to understand it as relevant for producing longitude and latitude. Because there's data in there about how many times you're turning your screen on and off in a day. Now, I can't explain to you as a social scientist why that's relevant for producing longitude and latitude data, but it's in there. It's part of the algorithms. It's part of the API packages that Google uses to triangulate where you are every second of every day. So I think that, you know, starting off, uh, or at least continuing our series of conversations, Mike, about resolution helps us understand that what you can access as a consumer on your device about the data that is used that might harm your privacy, you're only able to see about 5% of it. If there was a way for us to really dig down, we could probably start pinpointing what other kinds of fine, resolute data actually plays a role in creating consequences or implicating how we move and how we interact and how we vote on a daily basis. That's the world I wish we could get to, and I, I think the way to do it is by you know talking about resolution a little bit. Well, we're going to talk more about that next week, even if you are available next week. And we'll look at data granularity and kind of how deep we can get. Because, as Dr. Cook just pointed out, that's what people are interested in. How you move, how you vote. Those are big. Those are really big. Dr. Cook, thank you so much for your time today. You keep safe. My pleasure. You as well. Take care, London. That is Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing, as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center, both at Queen's University. Oh, and I meant to tell him, I don't know if Dr. Cook's still on the line. Happy anniversary! Dr. Cook is celebrating his first anniversary today, as a matter of fact. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 